in that moment, whether it was four or five months after the prank call, when I sat there and I decided to choose life, I made a vow to myself that I would always move forward. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm always going to find a way to move forward because I chose life. And that's what I've continued to do. And after it was just, I just couldn't believe that all this pain was still coming my way after what I'd been through, you know, losing my mum, the hubby, and then destroying my embryos. I, I started to go, why? Why, you know, am I being tested? Is this to build my resilience? You know, everything I've been through is, you know, some people don't even go through a quarter of, of that. And why am I being punished so much with all this pain in my life? And I guess it's, again, everything happens for a reason. And I found a way every time to keep moving forward. you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. When I mention the words royal prank, I no doubt you're now picturing Mel Gregg, one half of the radio duo caught up in the firestorm that surrounded the whole fiasco. There was a time where you couldn't turn on your TV or open a paper or scroll social media without some mention of the scandal, but just in case you need a refresher. In 2012, Mel and her Hot 30 co-host, Michael Christian, pranked the hospital where the Duchess of Cambridge was receiving treatment. They were impersonating the Queen and Prince Charles and they fooled the nurses on duty. A few days later, one of those nurses took her own life. From that moment, Mel's life completely unravelled. Suffering severe depression, she seriously contemplated ending her life. She was unemployable and because of the death threats made against her, she wasn't allowed to leave her house. But as Mel tells me, on one very, very bad day, on her bathroom floor, she chose life. And it's a motto she continues to live by and has got her through a turbulent time since. From discovering her husband's infidelity and their subsequent marriage breakdown, the destruction of her embryos, her mum passing away from pancreatic cancer and a stage 4 endometriosis diagnosis, which rendered her infertile. Mel gets really, really candid with me about the last eight years with heartbreaking honesty. And this is probably one of the most memorable interviews I've done during my time as a journalist because Mel is simply phenomenal and a true testament of a woman determined to turn the lemons in her life into lemonade by encouraging others to choose life and to choose it every single day. A trigger warning, this episode discusses suicide. Here she is. Thank you so much, Mel, for being here. I must say I've been super excited to have this conversation with you since we started organising it in November. What the hell? I know. And it was so good when you said the concept and I'm like, oh, let me have a little look-see-boo at your podcast <laughs> and turning lemons into lemonade. I'm like, yes, this is great. So many good stories. It feels like your life, I feel like. There's been a few. Maybe oh. is it is it safe to say just a few lemons? A few lemons, but the problem is, babe, the lemons, when you cut them open, are rotten. They're not rotten. 
ripe lemons that you can turn into anything. My lemons need to be thrown out. They're that shit. Like it's just, it's very hard to find the positive, but eventually you do get your lemonade. What about just a shitload of sugar? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That would be great. I could, I could substitute for that. That's fine. Okay. Perfect. Now, Mel, with all my guests, I like to get a really good idea of what their childhood was like, what their upbringing was like. There's just a, such a sense of simplicity, I yes. think, in childhood. Can you talk to me about that? What was it like for you? And you just you nailed it with the word simplicity, and that's what I miss. I just sometimes just want to go back to the simple life. I'm a bush pig. So born and raised farm girl. You're allowed to say bush pig if you're, if you're a true farm girl. Yeah. And I, I just loved living on the farm. You chase the sheep, you milk the cows, you roll around in mud. It doesn't matter if you wear brand names. You just, you leave in the morning, run around in the paddocks. You don't have phones. And that kind of childhood is the kind of adult life that I crave now to be able to just do that and switch certain things off. And I loved everything about being on the farm. It was a great upbringing. The only problem was when I turned 16, dad decided he wanted something more for us. He didn't want us to marry the local farmer. So we moved to Adelaide, the big smoke. And, you know, because brand names and peer pressure weren't around in primary school, they didn't exist. I've been thrown into this whole new city life world that was full of drugs, full of you had to be the cool kid. Where's your Adidas? Where's your, it was Mambo back then and Billabong. That was really cool. You know, we didn't have any of that. We were a poor family. So I rebelled very quickly and ran away from home within a year of going to this life that I absolutely loved to something I didn't want at all. You ran away from home. What does that mean? Talk me through that. I, I was couch surfing for two years. So I left home. I just didn't, because we'd been on the farm, mum and dad were too protective. I wasn't even allowed to walk down the street to go to the shop. Wasn't allowed to hang out with my friends. Wasn't allowed to go to the movies. They were so worried something would happen. And by doing that and not trusting me or talking to me or giving me an inch of freedom, I completely rebelled and ran away and, you know, didn't really have any connection with them for two years. How old were you? I was 16. 16? When I think of myself at 16, I would have had no idea where to have gone even if I wanted to run away well where did you go what did you do and I'm assuming you weren't at school no well I tried to stay into school so I was couch surfing with my friends their parents let me stay with them but I was at a different place every two weeks tried to go back to school and I was an A grade student but because the peer pressure was getting to me so much and I didn't feel like one of the cool kids my grades went down and I left and I didn't finish high school and that's when I started by the age of 17 volunteering in radio And that was basically my saving grace. I was about to ask, where did that interest in radio come from then? And what were you doing in those very early stages? Was it coffee runs? No, I was the phone girl. So it's like, hello, Fresh FM. And they called me Bambi. My co-host at the time wanted to be Bambi and Thumper because there was a few other Mel's on air. So I had this nickname. And there was something about radio that was really special because I was having fun and I was myself. And I'm like, what is this? Is this is this real life? Can you have a job in radio where you get to have so much? Mia, my Moodle, is trying to attack your microphone, being needy. We might ask her opinion on the matter soon. Mia, what do you think? Don't lick it, babe. That's gross. So, yeah, but what was I saying about radio? She's very distracting. That people were, you were like, do people want to hear me for me? Yeah, and and they did and it was fun and that started my radio career, volunteering for a few years and then I got my first real job in radio and it was just incredible. 
So in what way did it save you then just realising that you could be accepted for who you were? I think I found myself because the reason why I didn't want to, you know, that I rebelled so hard was because I was creative as well and they were all about academic. Even though we weren't an academic family, there was never any creative outlet within my family apart from doing sport and I think that's when I started to really piece my personality together and radio really stabilised who I was and I was starting to discover who Mel was. What? How did your parents feel when you were just missing in action for two or so years yeah they were shattered but there was a few family issues going on where it wasn't the best family unit that it could have been I missed my sisters I had a great relationship with my sisters and I still do but my parents you know they they loved us but they just didn't get it quite right and I think it's very hard for parents to know what to do and sometimes you do feel helpless but you need to have that communication with your kids and you've got to have that trust and we didn't have that Do you think that's been a really big thing for you now in terms of your healing through everything is coming to terms with your childhood and I guess understanding why people do the things that they do? Yes and no because I still don't understand how awful people can be and what went wrong in their lives to get to the point where they feel the need to do that to people in terms of trolling and online abuse and I I try and picture those people and go what kind of childhood did they have that got them to this point and I don't know if it's childhood. I just... But there is something along the way that goes wrong. I think maybe the next generation as well, we need more resilience, more empathy, understanding kindness. There is there is something, but I don't know. I just can't pinpoint it because I had a pretty shitty childhood with the running away thing and I'm not an awful person. So, you know, I think just because things happen to you as a child doesn't mean it has to define you as an adult. Radio is absolutely no easy game whatsoever and it's very hard to break in and do well in it whatsoever. Can you talk us through climbing that career ladder and did you have an end goal in mind? What was your dream gig? There is one word for radio and that is roller coaster. It is the worst and best ride you'll ever go on. You'll go on this dip and you're like, oh, this is awful. Is it going to be you know, is it going to get up and go go good again? And and that's what radio was for the first 20 years of my life before I got to the Hot 30 countdown because I'd started so young when I was 16, 17 doing radio. By the time I got my Hot 30 gig, I was 30. So in between that time, I did nearly every role possible in radio from on air, off air. I got fired at least three times because you're not a real radio person unless you get fired from a couple of jobs. That's just how it is and that's what happens. So, and you try and learn along the way, but It's an awful but amazing industry and it still is. Were there some graveyard shifts in that too? Oh, yeah. And I was volunteering to prove myself. So I'm the mo- probably one of the most driven people you'll ever meet. So if I needed to get up and do the mid-dawn shift for two weeks and work full time, I was going to bloody do it and prove myself. And that's how I'd get the jobs. Did you sleep during that period? No. And it was awful. <laughs> but I nailed those goddamn shifts and I got a job. It was worth it. <laughs> and as you said, you did make the Hot 30 countdown and that was your dream and you made the co-host. What was that time like for you? And did it feel like oh yes everything's finally coming together and it's all going your way yeah exactly that and it's funny because we talk about childhood and when I was that rebellious 15 16 year old before I ran away my my outlet was sitting in my bedroom with my pink cash converters recorder player what was it even called a little mini stereo thing with a cassette player yeah and I used to listen to the hot 30 countdown with Kyle and Jackie O and that was my saving grace and I loved it never listening to that did I ever think that'll be me one day 
doing that show. So when I finally got the Hot 30 Countdown, the biggest show in Australia with such radio heritage, I was like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. So I was, I just couldn't believe that finally, after working my ass off for over 18 years, I landed my dream job. And what was a normal day in the life for you there? Interviewing and meeting awesome celebs? Like, what did you do? Uh, let me check my email. Oh, Rihanna at 10 a.m. We got One Direction at 12. It, like, you're just meeting the world's biggest celebrities. You're living in a penthouse. You're living the absolute dream. Here's some free stuff. Here, eat here for free. Come to this party. Here's your VIP booth. It was everything you think it would be and so much more and we would do the tv show version of the hot 30 which was a new initiative as well so we were doing 17 to 18 hour days 8 a.m till midnight and you didn't care and you were just on adrenaline and you just loved every minute of it and did you think there is nothing that's going to get me away from this job? This is it. I am here for good. Absolutely. It didn't matter that I gave up my social life during the week. I was doing what I'd always wanted to do and I loved it so much. But again, we know what happened next and some things you just you just can't predict. Then I imagine that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you would have turned up to work one ordinary day and you probably have production meetings, I would assume, where you talk about the kind of segments that you're going to do and the people you're going to talk about. Do you remember that day that it was brought up that you're going to call Kate Middleton's hospital and, and what, what were you all thinking and saying about that? Yeah, so exactly that. We always have our, well, we have at least three or four big meetings every day planning. We'll plan in the morning, we'll plan in the afternoon, we'll keep planning until we've got those out-of-the-box ideas that are going to work. And that day we'd found out that the Duchess of Cambridge had been admitted to hospital with this severe morning sickness and, of course, that then announced the pregnancy, which no one knew about. And what I wanted to do, because, you know, with all respect, it's not our demographic. Our demographic wasn't into the royals. It was a hot topic, but we weren't that kind of show. It's very different now. Yeah, yeah, we were young. We were like 18 to 24-year-olds. They they're not really into that thing. So I'm like, well, what about if I just read out the celebrity tweets congratulating everybody? And that's what we were going to do. But by the fourth meeting, one of the other bosses had stepped in and said, why don't you do this? And we liked the idea because the idea was we'll both call, see how quickly we can get hung up on because we're going to keep impersonating and then swap voices. It was something that Hamish and Andy had done where they try and swap over voices and we just were like, yeah, we'll do that because this is a hospital. There'll be a media centre. It's not going to be nurses answering the phone when there's the royal staying at the hospital. These people will be trained. They'll hang up on us. They'll know to get rid of us. That's what we honestly thought was going to happen. That's exactly right because I know from working in the media when I call hospitals, I never have spoken to a nurse or a doctor, ever. That doesn't happen. No, especially when you've got royals or celebrities or someone in a hospital, there is always someone that's meant to be manning those phones. And that's no excuse at the end of the day, but that is our train of thought at the time when people say, why would you bother you know, nurses? We were never thinking a nurse would answer the phone. We thought a media centre would do it. And you know, fast forward the inquest, they now have a media centre. They didn't have one. That staggers me that they didn't have one, but yeah. And then the idea, the rationale was that you put on 
you were speaking as the queen. You put on this ridiculous, pompous accent and your co-host was Prince Charles and it was all supposed to be funny. Is that right? Can you talk me through what you guys were thinking when you were making that call? Yeah, we to us it was going to be funny because it was so stupid and I sounded like Miss Doubtfire with all due respect. Like it wasn't something that I'd rehearsed. It was something I did on the spot and it's something that, you know, it was a challenge to see how long we could last before we got hung up on. And you know, someone else dialed the phone. So even when we were making that call, we don't know if we were being stitched up because we didn't know what the number was for. We're just ready. Someone answers. We put on these accents and it was quite confusing until the end of the call when we, I remember saying, I'm like, is that real? Like, did that just actually happen? It was, it was really confusing and it just, it, it worked. We, we were put through. Yeah, because they were giving away details, not not super private, but private enough, weren't they, thinking you were the queen? Yeah, that was about three quarters through and you can hear it when I like I click and I realise, I'm like, hang on a minute, that was not in the report that I read this morning and I wrapped it up. I said, okay, well, I need to walk the corgis and, you know, he MC started to make corgi sounds to make it very obvious that it was a prank call and we wrapped it up. We could have kept going, kept digging for information. At that point, something said, this isn't right. I think I think they've actually thought that we are the royal family. And then it did make world headlines. Everyone was talking about it but laughing about it as well. I think even Prince Charles or Prince William even commented on it saying, oh, it was just, you know, a bit of fun. Is that right? Yeah, Prince Charles, a couple of days after the prank call, someone interviewed him for something and he said, how do you know I'm not a radio station? Conan O'Brien in America did a four-minute skit. Everybody was was finding the funny side of it and, you know, I'm ashamed to say that I found the funny side of it to certain extents, but that's because I tried to stop it from airing and I did my due diligence in, in what I was concerned about, but we were assured that everything was okay. And when you've got Prince Charles saying, okay, you know, he's seeing this, the funny side, you kind of let your guard down a little bit and you enjoy the hysteria that's around you going, okay, there's no harm. The hospitals come out saying the nurses aren't going to be fired for what's happened. There's no harm. I imagine as well in radio, as we'll, we, you were giving an insight into, it's so cutthroat and it's so brutal and you've got to be on the top of your game. I imagine that in the office there was probably high fives all around. Yeah, there was. You know, I've always been honest in saying that. I was concerned when we did it and I expressed those concerns and I suggested we play it in a different, a different manner. But when we were assured it was okay, there were high fives, there were jokes. I went out and had a champagne with my girlfriend. And, you know, those kind of things still haunt me. And I think that's what hit me for six even more because I'd started to let my guard down thinking this was going to be okay and there was a very outcome by the Friday. Yeah, because I don't know how many days later or a couple of days, two or three days later. We made the call on the Tuesday and Friday night is when we found out. So things did take a turn very, very quickly then. What do you remember on that Friday? So I'd been out with my girlfriend on the Friday night. My partner decided to stay up and I'd gone to bed. It was about midnight and he woke me up saying, you need to see this. And I'm like, why? Because I'd had a few drinks as well. I'm like, what? what's going on? And I remember looking at his iPad and there was this constant flow of murderer. You've got blood on your hands. Go kill yourself. And I'm like, what's this about? And my phone rang at the same time and it was um, my friend at work explaining to me what had happened and it was instant. The 
the state that I went into is still to this day really hard to explain. It's that ultimate hysteria is where you just feel so much guilt and disbelief and you kind of leave your body and you just float above and you watch. And I did that for six hours and then there was, you know, at least four hours that I don't remember. The only, the last thing I remember in that moment is asking my friend that had called me, was she a mother? And when she said yes, that was it. Can't even begin to imagine how that must have felt, especially because the backlash was so swift and so brutal. Can you talk us through giving us an insight into what the thing, the things that people were saying to you? Well, I didn't care what anyone was saying to me, to be honest, for at least three months because I felt guiltier than what they could tell me I was. I've, I did feel that I was to blame and... We went into instant lockdown because there were so many death threats. We had 24-7 bodyguards living with us. We had some pretty extreme measures that had to go into place. But again, I didn't care because I was happy to die in those moments because I just felt so awful. And I'm like, well, if I deserve to die for what I've done, then that's fine. I don't need your protection. But I wanted protection for my family. I did care for them that there would be an act of revenge. And there were threats of that. I'll kill your mother. I'll kill your partner. And it became a situation that just was just not real. It was so surreal living that life. And all I wanted to do in those first few days was learn as much as I could about Jacintha and her family. So I'd spend a lot of time online and I'd see all the awful comments, but I didn't invest my time into worrying about what those people were saying. I think we did a TV interview two or three days later and I don't remember doing it. Did you want to do that TV interview? No, no. How did it feel that that early on speaking like that to a TV outlet? I just wanted to say sorry and that's the only reason. And I remember someone who I, I won't name because there's no point. I've, you know, I've always been the one that's copped it all and I think it's better that way because if they start doing campaigns on individuals, what's that going to achieve? There's been enough hate directed at me. I'll, I'll cop it. But, you know, I was... I was told, do that interview so you can say sorry. If you don't do the interview, you won't get to say sorry. So because I was so mentally ill, you know, a simple trick of manipulation, you know, and I was in front of that camera to say sorry. How did you navigate each day in those early times? There was no days in those times. It was it was rolled into, into one. I, I remember I didn't even shower for four of those days. I'd gone to bed in my undies that night that it happened and I woke up four days later still in those undies because it was... I was not living a life. I wasn't doing anything. The curtains were were drawn. I was sitting in the dark online 24-7. How dark did it get in that that early time? Very dark, dark emotionally, dark, you know, literally not seeing the sunlight does affect you after a while as well and we didn't see it for eight weeks. Couldn't leave the house, couldn't do anything. But again, I didn't care. My partner did. He was going cabin crazy and it's very hard for people in those situations because there's one person that is ultimately feeling and living it and people are trying to be supportive but they don't get it and I don't think anyone would ever understand a situation like that. I know you got to make contact with the nurse's family at the inquest but in these early stages was there any access to be able to speak to them or or help you in any way? Well, it wasn't the time. They were grieving their mother's death so I made it very clear through our legal teams that I was there for anything that they might need. You know, there were some people that weren't being so forthcoming with information. And I'm like, I don't give a friggin' rat's ass. If you need something, I will tell you whatever you feel you need for peace of mind. 
and I stood by that and that's why they welcomed me to the inquest to see if, you know, if there was any pieces of their puzzle that wasn't connecting anymore, I was there to help them. How long did it take to start, as you said, you were housebound for eight weeks. How long did it then take to start the rebuilding phase? And I know the term getting on with it isn't the right term, but just trying to progress with your life, I guess. It's a good three months before I started to try and function as a normal person. I remember over Christmas, I was able, while we're in lockdown, to have my family and my first outing outside was to go to the bottle shop to get wine for Christmas Day and I had an absolute panic attack in in the shop and I couldn't handle it and I had to had to leave and I just, I couldn't, and it took about six months. Oh, you know what? Sometimes even still, it's seven years on, sometimes I get anxious in public. You don't know how people are going to approach you. You don't know what they think of you. And especially when you've read everything that you have online, I was completely brainwashed into thinking that the world hated me. And again, I didn't care if I died, but there was something that I didn't like about not knowing how someone would approach me. It gave me anxiety. Were you receiving therapy throughout this? What were you trying to do to support yourself? Yeah, there was, I think it was about maybe nine weeks after the prank call, I was drinking wine to try and calm myself down. And I remember sitting there and I had three bottles of wine and felt nothing, no effects. And I'm like, shit, that's not normal. There's something seriously wrong with me if I can't feel the effects. That's how numb I was. That's how injured I was and that's when I went to the doctor and they put me on antidepressants started seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist weekly and that do you think that's what saved you in the end yeah absolutely look it's people are always oh you don't want to go on a medication you don't want to do this and you need to bloody do what you need to do to get better don't worry about that stuff and the worst thing is and this is just cruel someone out there needs to create an antidepressant that doesn't put weight on (laughs) we're depressed enough don't make us fat with your antidepressants and then when you come off them. so But that's what you need to do. So that helped. Seeing a psychologist, understanding and getting through the guilt. God, she worked hard on me. It took a good six months until she made me not feel guilty. And I've learned so much since then. And the psychiatrist as well was all about the, the medication. She had to put me on quite a, a high dose of antipsychotic medication but not for that reason the hallucinations I was having and the fear I'd wake up every night so sure that there was someone standing over me with a knife that I had to start taking these antipsychotics to sleep it was the only thing that could make me sleep did you ever think that you would ever feel normal again no I didn't it took a long time and I think it was looking forward to my wedding and being so determined to lose all the weight I'd put on and to rediscover myself it gave me the motivation And I'll always be grateful for my marriage for that reason because it gave me hope. It gave me something to look forward to. And it was eight months of training, eating healthy and really looking after myself mentally that I finally felt myself again. Were you allowed to work? Like, did you go back to work or do any work during this time? No. For the first 12 months, I was too mentally sick. I couldn't. It was, I just can't begin to tell you how much mental health changes all aspects of your life and you just when you lose yourself you don't know what you want to do in your life either I didn't know if I wanted to go back to radio and then you'd think well what what am I going to do I remember my manager was ringing charities going you know can she come in and even stuff envelopes to try and 
associate herself with normal people and get back into the workforce. No, we don't want anything to do with her. So I, I tried for a year to actually find work and I got told no over a hundred times. And still to this day, I have issues at jobs with people panicking when they learn my past going, oh, well, we don't want to be associated with that. And it's something that I won't let it define me, but it is always a constant issue in my life. How does it feel knowing that, that you will carry around that forever? You have to learn to deal with it because it is a part of who I am. Whether I like it or not, it doesn't define me, but it is a part of my story. It's a part of my journey and I need to own that, accept it and go, okay, what can I learn from it? What can I take from it to help other people? And that's what I've been doing and that's how I get my peace. But let me tell you, some days you still have, you sit there and you just, it comes all flooding back and you just have an awful day and you think about how bad it was and but then you wake up the next day and you go okay it's a new day today and you you just keep moving forward this whole podcast is about doing what you just said then taking responsibility and taking ownership and using whatever has happened to you as a launch pad to a new life and a life you might not ever have imagined what did you learn throughout of this what what were the biggest lessons you learned so for me, it was resilience because there was a moment with the when I started to get better, I started to read the comments that I'd ignored for so long. Even though I'd seen them, I wasn't digesting them. So because I was better and caring about myself again, I started to read these comments. And let me tell you, think of the worst thing you can say to someone, the absolute worst thing that was said to me every day for two years. People don't realise that this whole event, this tragedy went on for two and a half, nearly three years in the headlines. It wasn't just this one event that stuck around for a week. We had the inquest. We had things with the radio station. This was constantly there just all the time. It wouldn't go away. So while it was still active in the media, the trolls were still active. So for two years, the worst things were said to me. And I remember sitting there one day and it said, I'm going to kill you, then I'm going to kill your mum. And I thought, I'm like, hang on a minute that's not an opinion, that's abuse. And then I started reading back through them all and I'm like, this this is just abuse. This is not what people actually think about me. This is abuse. This is a whole different level. And that's when I realised what trolling was and I started to go, they're just doing this to, to bring me pain. And I started reading them and after like about the 2000th message, I felt nothing. I was reading them and I'm like, oh, oh, well, this is just a sad, awful person. And that's when I realized, I'm like, okay, when I was reading these, when I was going through my mental health issues, I sat on the bathroom floor and contemplated whether suicide was for me and it wasn't and it never should be for anyone and I chose life. But then I started thinking and going, okay, I was an adult and I contemplated that because of all the abuse. How the hell is a child reading these messages and getting through and they're not and cyberbullying is killing a lot of our children and suicide is the biggest killer of our young. So I created a, a, an incentive called Troll Free Day to help combat cyberbullying, ran an hour radio special to, you know, over a million people in Australia, went to schools and spoke to these kids to try and help them understand cyberbullying. And that's one of the, the most powerful things I took out of what happened is, okay, I've, you've, you've actually got someone that can run a cyberbullying campaign because it doesn't affect them. As soon as someone tries to do good, they normally get attacked for it. Well, they can attack me and it won't matter. So I may as well help as many people as I can going through cyberbullying. 
Does it help knowing that these kind of silver linings and knowing you can help other people? I never want to say it makes it worth it, but does it make it feel like it wasn't all for nothing? There's this saying that people go, oh, you can't say that it's awful, but it has merit. Everything does happen for a reason. Doesn't mean it makes sense. Doesn't mean that it's that it's nice, but it, it does happen for a reason. And I think what happened in that situation has created a resilient person that can help others. And you could go two ways in those situations. I could have crawled up in a in a ball and felt sorry for myself and never moved on. Or you can grab those friggin' lemons, turn them into lemonade, and do something with your life and use your tragedy, your trauma to see it for what it is and try and help other people. I do want to go back to the inquest, which you touched on before, because that was a really pivotal defining moment for you. And I know, I think I did read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that when you went over, you were in a pretty bad frame of mind and you didn't think you would come back to Australia. Can you talk to me about that and about the inquest and why it was important for you to be there? I think the inquest, to be honest, I can't remember the exact timeline, but I know it was a good nine months at least after the prank call. So I was still battling at the worst of my depression. But my one mission was what can I do to help the Saldana family? And, you know, not many people understood that. They're like, well, look what you did. You didn't really help them, did you? And I'm like, you know what? Just this is something I need to know that I have now done everything I can to help them. So my legal team reached out to them and said, Mel's willing to come over to the inquest. Do you want her to go? And they welcomed me to the inquest. And, you know, the advice I got was it's too high risk. There's, you know, high chance of being injured, you know, bodily harm, potential death. And I wrote my will the day before I went to the inquest, didn't allow any family to come with me, just let my my lawyer wanted to come, obviously. So we went over and I wasn't expecting to come back. And I was okay with that because I know I was never going to move on if I didn't do it. And when I got there, there was there was a, apparently a guy standing at the front of the inquest with a headless picture of me. There was mobs. It was it was pretty intense. But I had bodyguards, and again, I was still in that frame of mind that I was okay with whatever was going to happen. I was going to do what I needed to do. And I sat in the inquest and I listened to it all. And it was you know there's some very sad moments. And at the end of the inquest, I'd written a letter to the family. And the the judge allowed me to read it and I stood up and I looked the Saldana family in the eye and it was the father and Janal and Leisha and I read my apology and Leisha, the daughter, and I had an eye connection and as I was saying sorry, she was crying but I could see that the pain was for me as well as her mother going, it's okay, like we know it's not your fault. Oh, now I'm going to get teary. Now I need wine. Yeah, drink. <laughs> but that was the oh, moment when you – I know, sorry. Where's your wine? <laughs> I'm going to grab it. <laughs> but that was the moment where um, she could see my pain and know that my apology was real. Let me get wine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'm lucky this isn't on video. I've ruined my mascara. <laughs> we just took a little – break because we just wanted to refill our wine glasses and dab our eyes a little bit I think there compose ourselves because yeah it was was obviously very raw and thank you for sharing that with me and when when you were saying I just wanted to go back to one thing then when you were saying you didn't know if you would come home was that because you were worried about what you might do to yourself or what you other people might do no I'd been through the moment of contemplating suicide that had happened I think 
maybe the three-month mark. Sorry, that's my Moodle. Mia, come back here. The three-month mark is when I chose life. So when I chose life, that's when there was a shift and everything changed. It may have been later. It may have been five months. But by the time I'd gone to the inquest, there was no... There was no suicidal thoughts. It was I genuinely thought I'd be murdered. How were you frightened going over? Was there any fear or did you just accept that could be reality? No fear. It was I'd accepted it. I'd accepted that that was a reality. I think as well you just the cultural abuse that we were receiving and, you know, a lot of it with a diversity of, of different races, some people take things a lot more seriously and to heart and they're very passionate about the cause. That's why it was quite a concern. Had it been something that was in Australia, I don't know if it would have been the same kind of level of threat. But, you know, there's not many people in the world that would stand there in front of a court, in front of police that have a sign that has you headless on it. Then you came home and what was life like for you after that? Did Was that the sense of closure that you could finally feel like you could move on and what did you do? Jacintha's daughter, Alicia, gave me the closure I needed when we had that moment where I knew that they knew that I had no intention of humiliating or hurting their mother and that I did what I could to try and stop that call from airing and that I was sorry, that I didn't laugh about her and, and make a mockery after what happened before I got caught in the moment, just like everybody else. But when we realised how serious it was, you know, they knew that I took it seriously. And then what was life like rebuilding once you came home? I still needed a good 12 months before I was mentally strong to try and go off the antidepressants and try and rebuild. Then you have the weight loss in, you know, situation where you want to try and lose it and regain who you are, but then you have the weight gain when you come off. The job rejection, even though I'd wanted to move forward, no one wanted anything to do with me. And this is why you need income protection, everybody, because if it wasn't for my income protection, I'd be screwed. So because I had that, you know, I was able to until I was mentally and physically better, which took nearly two years all up, you know, I I would have had nothing. And what was the toll of all of this on your personal life and your friendships and your marriage and your family? It was really hard. I was with Stephen at the time who ended up being my husband, but... Again, when you go through those situations, people try and be as patient as they can. They try and help, but they never really understand. And, the you know, even some people go, all right, it's, it's time to just snap out of it and move on now. You can't do that with mental health. You know, I'd have an amazing day and I'm like, this is great. I feel good. I've had the best day. And then the next day you wake up and you're so depressed and you can't work out why because you've just had this amazing day. You've got no reason to be depressed but it's a mental illness. You can't control it. And I couldn't just switch it off. I wanted to, but I couldn't. People grow tired of it, don't they? They just think, oh, okay, I've had enough of this. Can we stop this now? Exactly. And you know what happens when you do that? That person becomes more and more isolated. You don't have to understand why they're feeling that way. Just deal with the fact that they are and just be their friend. Just sit there on the couch with them and watch a movie. It's not rocket science. At least do something. Just don't write them off. Don't try and fix them. You can't tell them just choose happiness. I hate it when someone says choose happiness. You can't choose happiness sometimes. It's a mental health illness and you have no control. Toxic positivity is just (laughs) disgusting. I can't stand it. I'm like, uh, you just wish people would understand and they never will. And, you know, even as you grow older, your friendship groups change and that's because you change 
and what is important to you and what you stand for changes. And I think you really have to learn to be comfortable with yourself and be proud of yourself and be confident within yourself because as long as you've got that, you can get through most things. And, of course, what happened with the royal prank wasn't the only lemon that life threw at you. There was also your marriage breakdown and then your mum was also diagnosed and very quickly lost her battle to pancreatic cancer within a month, is that right? Or Yeah, yeah, within a month. Look, I was living, I didn't realise, but I was living under a lemon tree apparently because mm-hmm. I don't know how many times you can be hit in your life and just keep going down. So after the prank call, I got married and then turns out my husband forgot what I looked like and found 12 other lookalikes apparently and put his thing in their bits and we ended up getting divorced. (laughs) Well, clearly he must have been confused, the poor fella. (laughs) But then, you know, I had a a breakthrough. The same day I found out I was going to be on Celebrity Apprentice Australia had a phone call saying your mum's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and mum was saying, look, they've said, you know, she was a, she just wouldn't accept it. So she just goes, you need to, I want you to have a bloody job. You need to go do this show. And I spoke to my sisters. They're like, they said she's got at least three months. So the show will take eight weeks. You'll be okay. Just do it and, and get back. And I go, okay, we've got one rule. Don't call me unless it's time. Don't call me on the show unless that's what happens. And four weeks into the show, we were filming a scene and my phone rang and the shock hit straight away because I knew. And I got on the plane within two hours and, and she passed away two hours later. Within a month of diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, she had pancreatic cancer. It's just so swift and rapid pancreatic cancer. That's awful. It turns out she probably had it for two years, but... The thing is you don't – the symptoms and everything with pancreatic cancer, the, you know, back pain, stomach pain, they're quite common symptoms that people get and it's too hard to diagnose without surgery. You need to get in there and have a look in the stomach and it was just too late for my mum and I wish I'd understood the signs because she'd lost her appetite. She was starting to go yellow but she had diabetes as well but diabetes is also a sign of it. So. It was just it was just awful and I'm like, oh, God. Like, but I was there when she passed and let me tell you, it's one of the most traumatic but incredible, incredible moments you'll ever have in your life, being there when someone passes. And I'm just glad I had that because she looked at me and then she was gone. Is that what you remember from your last moments with her? Yeah, and I was patting her hair, playing her favourite songs and then I saw a psychic, um, psychic medium two months later. And let me have another little sip yeah, of my wine. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> sorry, oh. sorry for the tears. Oh, goodness. <laughs> this is the first interview I've ever done where we've got wine and I'm very <laughs> thankful that we do. <laughs> so psychic mediums is something that I believe in so much. I've had the most incredible encounters and two months later a part of what the psychic medium said was, your mum says thank you for for playing with her hair and playing her favourite songs before she passed. And I'd never told anyone that. So wow. you just know when you hear those things that they're at peace. And I I had three other readings with psychic mediums and they all said stuff that was never public because I wasn't, I didn't speak about my mum with our personal things that often because of the death threats. I didn't really talk about my family that much. And these are things that you can't make up. It's not, oh, does your mum, is it meh? 
I'm feeling Mary. She's got a left sore ankle. Like this stuff was legitimate. And there's, you know, I wore my mum's wedding ring on my right hand. Again, you know, you don't know that stuff. And when I found out my mum was at peace and she gave me so many signs, she'd flick the lights for the first year of her passing. She had so many amazing moments and that gave me my peace. And because I had the resilience of the prank call, I learned to deal with it all as painful just like the affairs and the divorce was painful, destroying my embryos was painful, endometriosis was painful. I'd just been hit for six over and over again. I'm like, like who was I in a past life that I've had so much pain? That means she needs to go oh, to the toilet. Okay. <laughs> my dog, my, my dog's standing near the door because she's like, ah, oh, excuse me, batches, I need to go to the toilet. Stop, I know you have stop crying, mum, and your talky talky, but somebody needs to wee. All right, sorry, quick dog toilet break. <laughs> Okay, we're back. Mia's had her wee. Yeah. As you were just saying then, losing your mum and finding out about the affairs that your husband had had and then we haven't even gone into the fact that you were also diagnosed with stage four endometriosis, which is hell. I can't help but wonder and want to ask how you keep standing. Do you know, it It takes a lot. It's very hard. But in that moment, whether it was four or five months after the prank call when I sat there and I decided to choose life, I made a vow to myself that I would always move forward. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm always going to find a way to move forward because I chose life. And that's what I've continued to do. And after it was just, I just couldn't believe that all this pain was still coming my way after what I'd been through, you know, losing my mum, the hubby, and then destroying my embryos. I, I started to go, why? Why, you know, am I being tested? Is this to build my resilience? You know, everything I've been through is, you know, some people don't even go through a quarter of, of that. And why am I being punished so much with all this pain in my life? And I guess it's, again, everything happens for a reason and I found a way every time to keep moving forward. That's what, another question. Was it easy to get bogged down in the why me? Why does this happen to ha- have to happen to me? Why not other people? Not now it doesn't and I think that's one of the lessons obviously because I don't. I just go, right, this is happening. I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to move forward. I don't sit there and go, poor me, why me? I just deal with it and I move forward. I tell you what though, I'm ready for my freaking happy ending. I'm really like where's my fairy tale because I, I honestly I've – I'm strong, I can handle it, but I've had enough pain in my lifetime. I've had enough. I'm done. I'm done with the pain, seriously. Destroying my embryos at the start of last year was, and that was, this is enough. And then last year was awful, like the transition from quitting radio into trying to find a different job. You know, I had to work with some really awful people. I had some encounters with friends and I just didn't understand why I was still being so tested and why I was still going through so much shit. But again, I'm starting this decade fresh and positive and it's been good because even though there's a few hiccups, I'm, you know, I vowed to myself, I'm going to find the positive in a lot of these situations. And you almost probably think, what else can really go wrong? Like, surely that's enough. This is probably, there's literally nothing else. Well, that's it. I, I, I'm like, and plus I need to be optimistic that there's not a lot else that can happen. Seriously. What would your advice be then to people who are dealing right now with their own personal struggles, no matter what that is? What would your advice advice be to them to keep moving forward? And this is the important thing to know. I've been through hell, but 
what you're going through could feel as bad as what my hell is. It doesn't have to be the same situation. We all handle things certain ways. And what you need to realize is you need to get to a point where you truly question, can you choose life? And if you choose life, and this is not some kind of praise the Lord shit because I'm not, this is just saying if you choose it, find a way to move forward. Life is shit sometimes. It's painful. It's hard. It's awful. Find that one thing every day that helps you move forward. If you have a bad day, go to bed that day and wake up feeling as positive as you can the next day and start again because life is worth it and there is a lot of great out there but you just got to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Don't dwell in the negative. Don't dwell in your pain. Just find those moments to keep moving forward. And throughout all of this, have there been a certain set of self-care practices or things that you've turned to that have helped you and helped your mental health throughout this? Yeah, it's gold wine. Here, let me have some. No, <laughs> no look, it's a bad thing to do. I have turned to wine quite a lot. I've had so many ups and downs with my weight and working out and trying to be healthy. I've I've lost the ability to have that ultimate self-love because sometimes I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I don't like being a 16. But then I look in the mirror when I think back to when I was a size 6 and I'm like, oh, I don't like being size 6. When I was size 10, oh, I didn't like being size 10. I'd pick on my arms and I'm like, I would love to just learn to truly love myself. I think I still have to find myself a little bit as well. And then I forgot what you asked. <laughs> Your self-care practices, oh, yeah, things yeah. that you do to support yourself oh, and right. ways so that you might be helping you love yourself again. That's why I was talking about my body because I'm like gym apparently helps people and good on you if it does but it doesn't help me because it's hard to train. I don't do enough for self-care. I don't do enough for my mental health. I think because I am so strong I just keep chipping away and maybe one day that'll break down again but for now and for the past you know four years I just keep chipping away and that kind of works for me and just shaking it off you really need to learn to shake it off and that's my kind of self-care but there's probably better ways of self-care like meditation gym doing all those things but even last year I just you know no this is the number one rule for self-care do what you need to do last year I needed a lot of isolation I needed to be in solitude and normally a professional would say don't do that you should be about around your friends and you should do this well sometimes people just need alone time so know what helps you, know what makes you feel good and just do that. And we didn't really touch, we touched on it, but we didn't go into it, your endometriosis diagnosis. What does that mean for your life now and what does that look like? Endo is awful and to any endo sisters listening, I feel you and it's, you know, we're not going to have that cure this generation but we can all work towards helping the next generation hopefully with a cure the reason why I found my endo and I was diagnosed was because I had time off after the prank call to listen to my body and because I was so, it's like it's driven by hormones, a lot of the endo, and because I was so stressed and all over the place, I had really bad pain and that's when they discovered stage four and I worked out that I was in, you know, big trouble. That's why we had the embryos and went through IVF. So naturally I can't fall pregnant and now at 37, nearly 38, it's just not likely for me that I'm going to have children. And I did ask you off mic before whether that be something you would consider going alone and that wasn't an option for you. I just don't want to be a single mother and I absolutely applaud anyone that is a single mother. The thing for me is I don't have the right support network. I've got my older sister and my younger sister and we love each other, but my older sister's got her own family. You know, my mum's passed. I don't have a relationship with my dad. 
everyone on my mum's side has passed away. There's there's no support network there for me. So this child would be reliant on a full-time mother that's working full-time, no one to, to help care, and I would be stressed and I would be unhappy. And to get to the point of even having that child in the first place is near impossible. There's like a 2% chance and I'd have to fight for it. And I'm a fighter, but I need to want it to fight for it enough and I can't see that vision of bringing a happy child into the life that I currently have. You're probably exhausted too. I am. It's just, you know what, I feel like an old battered woman sometimes. I really do. I try and get the cleavage out and feel like a lady sometimes and just be like, yeah, I'm still a hot 37-year-old woman. And I'm like, where's my wheat bag? I just want to sit on the couch. Bedtime now. (laughs) That's exactly, that's my Saturday night. Do you know my favourite TV show? I watch 94 Life and it's all the House Hunters International and the flip or flop. Like I don't even have a house but I just, I don't know, I've hit this peak of oldness and not coolness where I'm watching things on TV that normally wouldn't make me happy and I'm like, who am I? Yeah, and it's those moments that you do things like that or you realise you like your mum, which has happened had to, to me the other day, or I was in bed before midnight this New Year's Eve. Same, I was as well. Bugger that, who wants to be up after midnight? I got to 11, I was like, stuff this, I'm going to bed, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I think that's cool, that's a new cool anyway. But it is, it's those moments and you go, what, what is happening? What have I turned into? There's no like, I used to have the thrill of wanting to go to a red carpet, dolling up, and I'm like, I would avoid it like the plague now. Like you, things just change and you don't care about the things that used to be the most important things in your life. Where do you think you would be right now if all that has happened to you in the last seven years hadn't happened or is that just impossible to contemplate? Yeah, I I don't know. You know, would I have stayed on the same path with the Hot 30? Would that have evolved into a big breakfast show? Would I have been the next Jackie O on, you know, on a big Sydney breakfast show? Would I have gone to America? Would I have tried the UK? You know, you know, when you're an ambitious radio announcer, you look at the highest peak of where you can go. No idea. No idea. I don't even know where I'm going to be tomorrow. It really changes your your thought process when something like that happens. And I don't really think what if because you just really can't predict what's ever going to happen in your life. The only thing you can ever be sure of is today because who friggin' knows? The world might end tomorrow. You can't predict it. Well, that kind of voids my next question then, which was what does the future look like for you? <laughs> who friggin' knows? No idea. I Honestly, this is it's so weird because I've always had a goal or I've always had this vision where I'm so sure that's where I'll be the following year. I can't see it. I have no idea what I'm going to do next year, who I'll be, will I be married, will I have a new job. I can't see it. I just can't see it and I just need to learn to live live for today. And that's it's a tattoo I got years ago, Saja Breedy in Latvian. My mum was Latvian and it means in this moment, live for today, worry about today because you can't control the future. And I think after the prank call I stopped planning for the future because I realised very quickly that other people have control of your future and it's not just up to you. My final question I love to ask people, all my guests, is what would the Mel now, who's sitting in front of me, give the Mel in her darkest moments, which I, I assume and I could be wrong, was when you were in the bathroom contemplating whether to go on? What would this Mel tell that Mel? You made the right choice by choosing life. And I knew that in the moment that I did, but I would 
you know, pat her on the back and go, well done. Life's been pretty shit since then, but look at you. You got out of that moment when you thought you couldn't picture your future, you couldn't picture yourself out of that bathroom, and you did it. And here's your frigging glass of lemonade. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's not as sour as you thought it would be. (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been such an awesome chat. Thank you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. And good on to you. You've had, you you know, your times as well and what you've been through. But, again, different. It doesn't mean that it's not as hard as what my moment was. It's a different situation. But the pain of, of heartache is, you know, it affects us all in different ways. And it's all just about, and this whole podcast is about, and it's what you've been speaking about is taking responsibility of that and not living in it and seeing what you can do to make your life and hopefully other people's better for it. And I think we can all do that. It doesn't matter if you're in the spotlight or not. If you go through tragedy and you go, you know what, look, this is what I've learned from this, how can I help people, whether that's going to a local charity or or knocking on your neighbour's door and checking in on them and going, how can I improve this person's life or is there anything I can take out of what's happened? You don't have to be profile person to make a difference own your story and share it sharing is just the most powerful thing being vulnerable so thank you again for being so vulnerable because you've had me in tears and goosebumps the whole time (laughs) sorry (laughs) i never know it just it depends as well like because of how it happens sometimes i can talk about it and i can be strong and suck it up and then sometimes it's okay to be vulnerable and and, you know in the moments today because I trust and feel comfortable with you you know the raw emotions come out and you know it doesn't mean I I cry over every day it just sometimes it's very hard to talk about absolutely thank you so much again we'll chat soon (laughs) now I'm going to finish my rosé cheers though Thank you for listening to my chat with Mel. If you'd like to connect with her on Instagram, you can check her out at melgreg underscore and Greg is spelled G-R-E-I-G. You can find me at my new handle at Elizabeth O'Neill. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, I'd love for you to hit subscribe and click five stars and perhaps even leave a review. It'll help other people find Lemonade who perhaps really need it. And if this chat brought up any issues for you and you're feeling like you're struggling, 24-hour help is available through Lifeline on 13 11 14 chat next week guys bye Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.